Let's take our Bibles for our Bible study, please. And let's go to 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24. You may want to then jump over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Now, I'm not preaching all that's between those two chapters. Okay. But those two chapters go together in our Bible study because they're parallel accounts, written with some different information in each one. They're telling us about the very last days of David's life and some strange events that happened at the end of his life. Speaking of strange events, at the end of the life, here in 1970, there was a circus coming. The James Robinson Company Circus was traveling through Missouri. And as they were going through this town, they did what circuses did. They did a parade through the town with some of the animals, the clowns, some of the orchestra. Now, what they did at this one city is they put the orchestra, the circus band, on top of the wagon that down below in this was a cage with three hungry lions. But on top, as this was going down the street, they had the ten different band members standing on top of that cage wagon. Well, some of the people expressed a concern that the roof of that cage could not hold the weight of ten men. But then others said, it'll be okay. And so the circus boss insisted that all ten get up there. And as they were parading through the middle of the town and the crowd of people with kids and everyone, the roof gave way. When it was all done and the carnage was finished, three men survived. Can you imagine that horrible end of their life? Speaking about end-of-life strange situation, it started being publicized a few years after it supposedly happened. And I've not been able to confirm yes or no, but the story goes this way, that this Charles Coughlin, who was born in the area of New Brunswick up in Prince Edward's Island, to be exact, he was born up in that area and considered himself to be from that region. And always, you know, citizenship and wherever he traveled, he became an actor and went around the world. Well, when he was doing his final performance, he was a young man in his 50s, and he ended up in Galveston, Texas. Well, right then, around that time, he all of a sudden suffered some type of an ailment, and he died. His troop that he was with, they made a special casket, had it made up and engraved, and they put it in the ground. But within days after that, one of the huge um, hurricanes came through the Galveston area, and it flooded all of this one part of the town, and underwater was the the graveyard as well. Some of the caskets came up. Well, one of the caskets that apparently came up was this Charles Coughlin's casket, but they couldn't find it. Now, fast forward several years later, like five or seven years later, there's a fisherman off Prince Edward Island in his fishing boat, and he sees something bobbing in the water. He hooks to it, drags it to shore, and when he got the barnacles off, it was engraved, and he realized Charles Coughlin's casket, this was it. Supposedly, it floated out of the Gulf of Mexico, took its time getting all the way up, and when the guy brought it to land, it was within two miles of where Coughlin was born. Talk about strange endings. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have a strange ending. It's not David's death. It's getting close to it. And I got to tell you that these last five chapters of 2 Samuel, they're out of order. We have David's last words. We have this, that, and happening. So they're not in chronological order. I'll explain why next week. But there's an account that takes place that is really an odd happening. And as we go through the story this morning, uh, in David's, one of his last official acts, there's a a lot of material here. There's a lot of debate by people about the authenticity of the story. But there are several lessons. 
And so if I can just do it this way, a little bit odd way of doing it this morning, let me give you the lesson that we're starting off with, and then we'll explain the detail. Lesson number one that stands out is this, is to me is this. Godly people, like you, godly people need always be on guard. Be on guard. Be on your guard for temptation, sin, because we've talked about how bad that can be. But there's a reason in this text, because God doesn't ignore any of these wrongs that you might get caught up in. Be on guard because God is not going to ignore any of the wrong that you get caught up in. Let me, let me illustrate that from David's story. What happens if you read through this entire chapter? What David is doing is he's on the throne. He's in Jerusalem. It's in his latter days. And David, he, is, he has just written about his mighty men. And after he's chapter 23, which we talked about, his soldiers, it talks about all their victories and their battles, and it talks about how they beat the, the Philistines and the giants of the Philistines time and time again. Then all of a sudden we end up with this story that David, sometime after that, he's, he's going to want to do something. He wants to do a census. He wants to do a numbering of the people. In more particular, he wants to number the men who are able to serve in the military. And so there he wants a numbering of all the men in Israel from 20 years age on up is what's going to happen. And when we look at the account, it's going to become very clear. It's a bad move. This is something David should not be doing. That, let, me, let me bring it out right away. David's, David's chief, his chief of staff is Joab at this point. Joab, look down into the chapter. Joab says he ought not to do this. Look at verse 3. Joab will say, David, I, I hope the numbers are fabulous and that you have, you have all kinds of numbers, but don't let us do this. We shouldn't be doing this. Joab is not a godly man, and Joab thinks this is a problem, numbering the people. Not only Joab, but in, in uh, second Chron- or in First Chronicles, the parallel account, Joab, Joab says, not only is this unwise, but he calls it a cause for trespass a cause for sin. This is going to become a temptation. Don't do it, David. He's not the only one. If you go into the little bit more into 2 Samuel 24, and you look at verse 4, when Joab is told to go out and doing it and do the numbering, it says, so do the other captains, they go out, who had made comment that this is, this is not right. David's word prevailed against Joab and the captains. So there's lots of people saying, David, don't do this. David, don't do this. But David insists on doing it. In fact, we read in First Chronicles, we read these words that God was displeased with this thing. And we also find out that David, as the story moves along, David will ultimately say, I have sinned. I have done very foolishly. Foolishly, then he says very foolishly. So we know it's wrong. So the question is, why did he do it? If David, if Joab, if the captains, if they knew this was a bad thing to do, why did David do it? Well, you read the first verse of 2 Samuel 24, and you read these words, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now you compare that to 1 Chronicles, and 1 Chronicles says this, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David. So who is it? Who did it? Why? Wh- wh- where's the motivation coming? Well, if you and I understand the Bible correctly, which all of you do, I struggle, but you got it down pat. God never tempts anybody, ever. God never tempts anybody. 
Never deceives anybody, never tempts anybody to sin. So this is not God tempting. But this is very similar to what happened to Job. Remember, Satan wanted to attack Job, but he had to get whose permission? He had to get God's. He was limited. So that's not that God who initiated the temptation, but Satan does. But God is going to use this because God has something against Israel. God is going to use what is going to happen here as some means of correction, growth, approval. He didn't initiate the temptation, but Satan, who's going to come and do the tempting, God's going to use it and bring about good out of this. And so what happens is the Lord's anger is is there. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means specifically. What was God upset about with the nation? that he would allow Satan to tempt David and somehow it's going to work out to correcting the nation. Was God upset that the people had rebelled? Now, there's been two rebellions recently, Absalom's and then Shema's rebellion. And then after the rebellion, they, they hesitated to bring David back to the throne. Well, David's God's appointed man. Is he upset with the nation because some of them had rejected God's appointed man, God's king, God's program? I don't know. That's a possibility. But whatever it is, God has, God has a work he wants to do in their hearts. And Satan comes along and says, you know, gets permission. He's going to tempt David and God's going to use the entire circumstance. So what Satan means for evil, God is going to use for good. And we know that that happens. We know that God can take evil, what's meant for evil, and bring about good. Joseph's brothers, when they sold him. It was meant for evil, but God brought about good. Jesus dying on the cross. There was evil by people, but God used it for good. In this case, there's evil intended that David falls for. And my question is, why did David fall for Satan's temptation? What is it that caused David to go against his advisors, to not listen to his captains, his chief of staff, and to persist in doing this, but later on saying, I've done foolishly? What would have motivated David? Well, we know behind the scenes we have that spiritual working of Satan, but David could have said this. In the past, we've numbered the nation, and they did. They numbered the nation twice in the beginning of the book of Numbers and the end of the book of Numbers. But that's been hundreds of years ago when they were first coming into the promised land. Never once since then has there been an allowed sentence, nor has God said, number the people ever again. So David may have just justified it in his idea that he says, hey, I want to do this. Moses did it. Maybe, maybe David's moved by presumption. Maybe he's moved by the fact that he's going to just get ahead of God. He's going to do something. And maybe it's his pride. Maybe his pride that I want to do something that Moses and only Moses did in the past. Maybe he's, maybe he's moved by his successes over the Philistines in chapter 23. And the battles time and time again and defeating all these giants who were spread through the region. Maybe it's pride. Maybe he's just lifted up. Maybe it's this idea that even though his fame has spread throughout all the regions and there's a fear, maybe David thinks that if I count the people and the army and I publish the numbers, maybe the numbers will really increase my fame and other nations will, will really, you know, really back off. So maybe I can use this for my benefit politically. I don't know. 
Maybe David has in his mind, I'm going to start a new campaign. I'm going to spread the boundaries. I'm going to number my army so we can do another war and expand even further because we've settled the Philistines within our territories. Maybe we can, we can do a further expansion and, and I'm going to do it in my last days. Yeah, yeah, rah, rah. We're battling or we're winning the war. Let's go out and fight another war that God hasn't authorized. I don't know. Maybe in this case, maybe David is just thinking to himself, I want to build up a standing army. By the way, a standing army was the warning of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel said, you're going to want a king, but beware, because the king, when he, when he comes on the throne, he's going to do a couple things. He's going to take your sons, and he's going to create these armies. And maybe he's talking about those standing armies. Maybe that's what David was doing. Or maybe... When you typically number people, what goes along with numbering people? With the set taxes. And remember, 1 Samuel warned about that. It warned that they will, your kings will increase your taxes. I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe the bottom line is just this. God found it so reprehensible and had warned about it in 1 Samuel that if you keep on looking to yourselves and your own army and your own strength, you will stop trusting me. Do you remember how when David went out to fight Goliath, what did he say? The battle is the Lord's. And maybe Joab knew it, and the captains knew it, that this is, this is, this is bad for Israel. We're going to get our people more, more focused, not on God for provision and protection. We're going to start getting people to focus on the chariots and the soldiers and the things that we're not supposed to be building up. I don't know, and frankly, neither do you. The Bible doesn't tell us why David did it. It tells us that he did it. And so he does it, and what happens is he sends Joab out, who Joab says, don't do it, don't. But David is insistent. The word of the king prevailed against Joab and the other captains. So David doesn't listen to counsel. The men go out, and they start numbering the people. And David calls it later on a foolish decision. He admits that. And we understand that that's foolish. Here he is, a man after God's own heart, doing something stupid. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine somebody making such a tragic decision, even though they worship on Sunday, even though they follow the Lord, even though they're in a prominent position? I tell you, we've got to be careful. Even a godly man like David, who let down his guard, he made a foolish decision. Even though he's the king of the nation of God, even though he's an, an older person, an experienced person, a wise individual, even though he's had lots of successes in the past. Chapter 23 is filled with them. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. Even though you're popular at this point, he is popular with the people. The people have finally rallied to him. And he's popular and everybody wants, you know, David's our hero. He's old, but he's definitely our hero. And he's the guy once again. But we've got to be careful that all of a sudden our popularity doesn't cause us to become proud and make a foolish decision. David, in this case, he's already been writing lots of psalms. He's already been encouraging worship. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant there to the, to the nation. He's already stockpiling for the temple. He's involved with advocating for God and worshiping God. And he's busy. He's there. He's on a regular basis going to the, to the church service at that time. And yet he makes a foolish decision. If a man like David can make a foolish decision, even though he's had experiences of making dumb decisions and he corrected them and got out of them, any one of us can fall. 
And we can fall back into the same old dumb things. We can go back into the same type of lying or cheating or anger or uh, you know, just wrong attitudes, wrong conduct. Be careful. Do not do what David did. Do not let down your guard. Maybe David did it. Maybe the reason he let down his guard is there's no mention of prayer in this text until he repents. And yet we read about him, whenever there's difficulties, he's typically running to the Lord, but nothing here. It doesn't seem like he did it this time. Maybe it's because he didn't listen to wise counsel. Every other time he's listening to counselors, when when they're telling him about greeting the army, when they're telling him about correcting situations, he's attentive. But not this time. This time he's just stubborn. You can't imagine somebody being that way, can you? Maybe it's because his own self-centered plans. I don't know why. These all seem to contribute. But I do know this. He dropped his guard and God didn't overlook it. So godly people need to be on their guard because God doesn't ignore when you persist to do wrong just because you go to church. Just because you put money in the plate. Just because you're older. Just because you've had victories in your life. God doesn't ignore that. God doesn't excuse it. God expects you to continue to live for him today, tomorrow. No matter what's been in your past, God will be on your guard. A writer was talking about how she went to one of the beaches and she went there with a friend. And the friend went walking and she thought, I'm going to go in and I'm going to enjoy and just a leisurely just just floating in the in the ocean waters and enjoying myself and just kind of just bobbing along and as she's just bobbing along all of a sudden a fisherman from down the beach came running up and yelling at her yelling at her get out of the water get out of the water so she thought well maybe you know maybe there's something dangerous so she started swimming and she says when i got up to where i could touch i quickly ran and i looked behind me and there was a shadow under the water under the surface about 12 foot long And she got up and she's saying to the fisherman, was it a shark? Was it a shark? He says, no, it was a salt water alligator or crocodile, if you know which one it is. And he said they they frequent this area. If that fisherman hadn't been on his guard, she would have been lunch. And she wrote about how this was just, she just learned that so often we just go through life and we're not on our guard. Now, if you really like crocodiles. You can go visit places where you can get closer to them. Okay? But even there they have guards up. You know, they have shielding up. Somebody's or if you really want to spend $200 for 15 minutes, you can go swimming with the alligators. And in this particular place they have 200 of these gators that you can swim or you can be in this little glass container and get up close and personal. But look at even up close and personal, there's, there's safety taken. There's guards taken. There's caution taken. And you, you look at this and I think you're absolutely nuts. I would love to do it. Okay. But you're crazy. But all of this comes back to this same idea. Do you remember what is written in the New Testament? All these things happen unto those characters in the Old Testament. For our example, they're written for our admonition. Do you remember how the rest of the phrase goes? It goes on and says, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands. That's why the illustrations are given. They're given so that we don't repeat their same things by saying, Well, I'm, I, I, I'm, you know, 
I'm godly like David. Because even somebody like David can fall. Jesus with his disciples. Do you remember what he warns them when he's in Gethsemane? He says, pray lest you enter into temptation. Those are the guards. Those are the barriers we can't let down. And yet some of you have this week. Some of you haven't been praying consistently. Some of you haven't been in the word of God. Some of you haven't been maintaining an accountability. Some of you haven't been busy serving the Lord and watching around you and being careful. Don't drop your guard this coming week. Why? Because God doesn't ignore it when you do wrong. Let me give you another reason, another lesson I should say from this story. Godly people who have dropped their guard, they should grovel. Not only should they keep their guard, but if they've dropped it, they should grovel before God. Why is that? Because the correction that God may send, the chastisement, it could be pretty serious. Here's what happens in David's account. David is insistent. We're going to number. He's warned, don't do it. He insists on doing it. So they go out and they number the people. And he had said, go from Dan to Beersheba, from the south to the north. You number all the people. And so they numbered all the, the young men, as I said, 20 years of age, uh, could be fight. And they returned to Jerusalem. And they turn in their numbers. Now, this, this is not going to make a spiritual difference, but I want to explain something to you. Because some of you reading the account right now, you're saying, wait a minute, there's some discrepancy here in this account. Because if you compare the, to the numbers in the two, they vary by quite a bit. Second Samuel gives some numbers for all of Israel and then for around Judah. And Chronicles gives numbers. Same story, same account, but they vary by tens of thousands of numbers. Why is that? Why is that? Okay. Well, one reason could be, as some people say, this shows that the Bible has errors. And that's where some people have landed. They have said, therefore, I'm not going to listen to the Bible because it's filled with mistakes. I, like many of you here, I believe the Bible is the, in, the infallible word of God. I believe that God spoke these words. I don't believe he makes mistakes. So how do we explain discrepancies in numbers? It's not that difficult, friend. If you just do a little bit of Bible research and not get caught up by a skeptic, by a critic, if you start looking and saying, wait a minute, they, they describe the numbers that they counted differently. In 1 Samuel, it talks about the valiant men that drew the sword. The next one says, just the men that drew the sword. There's a possibility that not every one that's being counted was a valiant soldier. Would you grant that that's a possibility? Okay. The second one does the same thing. 500,000 men of Judah, and then he says 470 that drew the sword. Okay, so now we might have difference because of who they're counting. Or probably more likely is this. It is interesting if you do other Bible research into the armies, the standing reserved army, David's National Guard, and you look at the number that was full-time army, that it's the exact number where, they, where there's a discrepancy. So when they numbered the people, they may have included in one of the numbers the standing army plus all the others, or they may have eliminated them in some of the numbers because they are exact, going together. There, there's possibilities. The possibility that, it, or the insistence that it has to be a mistake, that, that's, un, that's unreasonable. There are explanations for it. But beyond that, let's, let's get to the account. Okay, 
So what happens is Joab gets tired. He's doing it for ten mo- uh, nine months, 20 days. And Joab's been going against his own conscience, uh, but doing what David said. And finally it says, the king's word was abominable to Joab. He stopped. They didn't complete all the numbers. They haven't counted the tribe of Levi. They haven't counted some of the, tri- some of the peoples around Jerusalem. And so what happens is, God at this time makes this comment, God was displeased. And so he is chastening Israel. Okay, there's going to be a chastisement that comes. At the same time, when things are happening, and I can't tell you which one comes first. Remember, chronological order in these five chapters isn't necessarily the critical event. But what happens then, David sees the errors of his way. When Israel is being smitten, his heart is smote, that David responds and he says, I have sinned greatly. But they've already done it. He's already insisted for months against advice, against counsel, doing something out of pride or whatever. But now, when there's chastisement that's coming, David's response is, I'm wrong. I have done wrong. And so what happens is David's going to grovel before the Lord. Because Gad, a prophet of God, not Nathan, but Gad comes this time, and Gad says, God has given me a message, David. Because you have sinned, there's chastisement. But God's going to give you a choice. You choose door number one, door number two, or door number three of chastisement. Door number one is you're going to have several more years of famine. Remember previous chapters? There was already a famine for three years. And it says there's going to be additional famine. It says door number two. We'll, God is saying for three months you're going to lose every battle. You're going to be on the run. You're going to be in the wilderness once again. David's already been through famine. He has seen how that's devastated for the last few years. David's already been on the run. He already knows how evil men can be. He's already been betrayed by his son. He's been betrayed by his father-in-law years gone by. He's been betrayed by Ahithophel, his great counselor that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so David, rather than fall into the hands of men, David picks door number three. It's three days of pestilence or plague upon the land. Now, does David pick it because it's shorter? That's a possibility. We don't know exactly why he chose it, but the fact is, the other two he's experienced, the plague is a new one, and so he says, I'll take it. And then he makes this comment. I am in a dilemma. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hands of men. Like I said, that's happened to him before. And so he's trusting God. He's trusting God. I I know that I've done wrong. I deserve the correction. And I'm going to trust you, God, even in the correction. I am not going to let my, 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 my spirit give up. I'm going to be faithful to you. But three days are going to be horrible. And so what happens is, all of a sudden, here comes the chastisement. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, or pestilence, from the morning to the evening. And there died from the whole region... There was whatever COVID epidemic of some sort, whatever it be, but it was, it was quick. 70,000 people dead in a matter of hours. David is absolutely devastated. The, the passage describes that there's an angel with the plague, the angel of doom, as I call it, and he's coming, and they see him in the sky, and he's approaching Jerusalem. 
And David and the elders, it says, they see the angel. And they're in sackcloth, and they're in, they're in ashes, and they're weeping and wailing, and they fall on their faces before this angel. They are mortified. I mean, seriously. If you saw a death angel approaching, you and I would be mortified too. If we saw an angel in his glory, most of the time, what did people do? They fell down as dead men. And that was an angel. And this angel comes with a sword unsheathed, very clearly stated. And so what happens is David and the, and the leaders, they're groveling. They're before the Lord. And David cries out, he says, let me, let me be slain. The people were following me as the shepherd. Let me be destroyed. Stop killing the people. It's my fault. He's groveling. And rightfully so. It is David's fault. Were the people engaged in it to a degree? Yes. But David is the initiator. David is at, is at fault. God's holding him responsible. And God repents. It means God stops it. God changes what is happening. God isn't, God isn't guilty of anything in repentance the way we think of repentance. God just is going to change what he was doing. And he says to the angel, it is enough. Doesn't it remind you of a phrase from the New Testament? When there's judgment taking place and it's a heinous situation, but this time we hear the good news, it is finished. My friend, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Jesus cry on the cross. Where Jesus was suffering the death punishment, the separation from God for all of our sins that we deserved. And Jesus, he has said, gone to the Father, he says, God, please let this cup pass from me. In other words, don't let me suffer this forever and ever. Don't let me, because it's going to be so horrible. I will gladly suffer because I love these people, but please let there be an end to it. And while he was on the cross, he calls out, it is finished. I have paid it all. Jesus paid it all, as we heard. Well, that's exactly a similar cry that, that encourages our hearts. Like David must have been encouraged when God said, it's enough. When we hear that Jesus says, I have paid it all, it is finished. Oh, my friend, that gives us such hope that we have a helper who can get us into heaven. We don't have to do any works. We don't have to pay anymore. We don't have to suffer for our sins. Jesus paid it all. What a blessing. What a blessing. All we have to do is ask him to give us what he purchased in that payment. Forgiveness of sin. Eternal life for us. Well, all of a sudden what happens here is the, the angel is stopped. Now, many Bible scholars think that God stopped it before the full three days. And the appointed time mentioned earlier might have been the evening, the evening sacrifice. Others think, well, it did last the full three days. I don't know. Okay? That's a debate for much wiser people than me. But what happens then is you have this fact that David has groveled and Let's, let's, let's be honest about it. God's choicest servants. God's choicest servants, like you. If you do wrong, God will chasten you. How do I know that? Because the New Testament says what? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges. He might even have serious discipline. And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because God loves you. 
Like a good parent, if you do wrong, there is going to be correction so that you stop going that route. And so God chastens David. David couldn't hide behind his crown. He couldn't hide behind the monies he's given to the temple. He couldn't hide behind the idea that he's written psalms. He's being chastened by God because he was stubbornly doing wrong. And it's appropriate that God would do that. Because what is the result? It says in Hebrews, no chastening at the present seems cool, fun. But afterwards, it produces the fruit of righteousness. And that's what's going to happen in David's life. All of a sudden, David is going to have this chastisement. And by the way, it may vary between people in this room. Why do some people get chastened more strictly than others? Why do some children get a harsher spiritual spanking than others? It could be because of what different levels of knowledge. It could be because of different positions and responsibilities. It could be because of how long you continue to do wrong. But the fact remains, our loving Father will chasten us, and we cannot excuse. And if you sit here and say this morning, well, I've been lying, I've been cheating, I've been, I've been dishonest in my, in my filling out my time card or my taxes, I, I've been on the internet porn site, I've been, I've been lying at work or to my parents, and I've gotten away with it. If you're a child of God, that will not continue. God will chasten His choicest servants like you. God will correct. You better grovel before the chastisement reaches its full effect. And put your hands in the hands, put yourself in the hand of the Lord, and what correction takes place, pray that it is not as severe as what it could be. So, what happens in this text is he teaches us there needs to be some groveling, like David did. I want to fall into the hands of God, not into the hands of men. It's an interesting text. If they confess their iniquity with their trespass, which they trespass against me, if then their hearts be humbled and they then accept the punishment of the iniquity. Isn't that interesting? Then will I remember the covenant with Jacob and Isaac. The idea of accept the punishment is they repent. They don't get bitter at God. They don't accuse God, but they say, God, you are right. This correction you put in my life, I need it because I've done wrong. And then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've had lessons so far. One that says that we need to be on our guard. One that says that if we've dropped our guard and gotten in trouble, we need to grovel. Third lesson, godly people should be extremely grateful by the grace God bestows when they grovel. If you're a godly person who has fallen, and I'm, I would think that if you've been saved any length of days, you've had this experience. You've come to God, and you've fallen. And you've gone, come back to the Lord again and said, God, forgive me. And God, in His grace, forgives you. He's faithful. He's just. He cleanses you. How do you respond after that? How do you respond when he forgives you as his child, but you don't deserve it? That even as his child, and you know better, but you were insistent on maintaining that lie. You were insistent on not returning what you stole. You were insistent on deceiving somebody. 
When you call and God gives you grace, your response should be one of being extremely grateful. What happens in the rest of the story? Well, David, he all of a sudden, as the story goes, God speaks, the angel is stopped. And where the angel stopped, right above Jerusalem, it's at a place just outside the city of that ancient time. And Gad says to David, go build an altar there, an altar of gratitude, an altar of appreciation, of sacrifice. Go build an altar right there, because that's where the angel stopped. And so David goes out to that area just outside the city on the north side, and there's a farmer there, okay? David doesn't hesitate. David is quick. David doesn't go and offer, as Chronicles ends up talking about, his fear of the Lord. He doesn't travel down to where the tabernacle is elsewhere. But David does the sacrifice right here, right, on the, right outside the city, on the road. He goes up to the guy who owns the property, and his name is Aruna or Ornan, however, whatever word, uh, whichever name you're going to choose to follow. And he goes out there, and it's a threshing floor, which the, the pulpit area would be like the threshing floor. If this was a field, the threshing floor is lifted up. It's a hard surface. We're throwing the grain up. The wind is blowing it away because we're on a, a raised section, raised section. And they're working out there, and it says that the four sons of Ornan saw the angel, and they ran for their life. I guess so. And Aruna looks up, Ornan looks up, and here comes David, quickly. The old man can move when God has said, get up there quickly. And he's come up there, and he bows down. And uh, by the way, uh, Aranu, he, uh, Ornan, that, that fellow, he's a Jebusite. That, that's not Jewish. He used to, his family used to live in Jerusalem. But he, they ha- he has adopted the culture, the, the religion of the Jews. And so what happens is uh, he bows down before David. And he says, Master, what, why are you here? And David says to him, he says, I've come because the Spirit of God has told me and I want to buy your land because I want to make a, an altar right here to God and a sacrifice. Oh, my. Ornan says, you can have all of my land. You can have my oxen that are working the field. You can have the yoke. You can have the wagon. You have it all. You can have the land, the animal for the sacrifice. You can have the stones. I'll give you the wood for the sacrifice. Everything is yours. Because I'm with you, David. After my sons ran away from that angel, and if this is an expression of gratitude to satisfy God, I'm I'm on board. I'm giving everything. And David responds, and there's so many messages made out of this. David says to him that he says, um, I'm not going to give a sacrifice that has cost me nothing. Oh, what, what a marvelous truth. I mean, you and I, we don't mind giving somebody else's money away. I'll gladly loan your money to somebody. Okay. I'll gladly, I'll, I'll throw, you know, we got Sacrificial Sunday coming up next week. I would gladly put your money in the offering plate. But that's no sacrifice for me. And so that's what David is saying. He's saying, hey, here's what we, if, if I'm making sacrifice to God, out of gratitude for what God has done in forgiving and staying this play, it's going to cost me something. And so David then, he makes this sacrifice. He pays, by the way, he pays a good amount of money for everything that they arranged to price. And so it's really interesting that where this is, Anybody remember what happened at this same spot 850 years earlier? Anybody know? This very, this very threshing floor, 850 years earlier, the one that David's buying. 
850 years earlier, somebody else made sacrifice. Abraham took his son to that very spot. This is the very spot where Abraham raised the dagger and was trusting God and God spared Isaac's life. This is the same spot. By the way, this is the same spot that what's going to happen. Okay. Not, not the Lord crucified, but something else is going to happen within a few years right here. David's going to have Solomon do something here. He's going to build a temple right here. This thing that has all of, you know, this whole tragic story of somebody doing wrong, what does God bring out of it? God is going to twist it and bring some good out of it. This is going to become the spot where it's going to be the light of the world being broadcast. This is going to be the spot where the Jews are to be bringing the Gentiles to hear the gospel of God's grace, of God's forgiveness, of God withholding punishment that was deserved. Just just the whole... it's, It's chilling to think how God was just maneuvering all this to use us in such a very special way. But what's interesting is there's something in the story that you do this, you know, you see everything, I don't. When I read accounts, I miss stuff in my Bible. Maybe one or two of you have done that too. You've read a story multiple times and you say, I never saw that before. Does anybody ever do that? Or am I the only one? So I never saw this point before. When David makes the sacrifice, something miraculous takes place. David makes the sacrifice. He built the altar and called upon the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven. Fire comes out of heaven and takes up the entire sacrifice. Has that ever happened before in human history? It'll happen later on. Has it ever happened yet? Never. This is the first time in Old Testament history that we know of where God sends fire from heaven. Now we know it's going to happen another time in the future. Future to David, our past. There's two times it happens. One of you already mentioned it was when, did you say it, Bob? It's when Elijah has the contest with the false prophets at Mount Carmel. Okay, that's the one time. Do you remember the other time it happens in the Old Testament? And it'll happen right here. Anybody remember the only other time fire from heaven with sacrifice? When Solomon dedicates the temple. So what's happening here is not only have they seen a death angel, which would knock your socks off, but, oh, excuse me, knock your sandals off. Okay, the, the next thing that happens is in this sacrifice, given in gratitude, oh, God, thank you, all of a sudden, whoa, fire from heaven. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? God accepted it. God accepted it. God showed his approval in this whole thing. That, David, you and me were back on terms. Here we are. We're, it's, it's been taken care of. I am pleased with your sacrifice. David is showing gratitude. And so what happens? What happens? Out of gratitude, not only does he make a sacrifice, but the very, some of you are in First Chronicles. The very next chapter, what does David do? 
to show gratitude, he says, hey, we got to get, I'm going to, I'm going to hire the hewers for the beams of the temple. I'm going to start getting, not only am I storing up the cash, I'm going to start storing up. And David is moving to get this temple built, to get this temple built. So when Solomon comes, we can get this temple at this spot so that it is a testimony to so many people, even to Gentiles like Ornan. That they can be accepted by God who is going to give and say, it is finished. It's an amazing story. David is just gushing with gratitude for what God has done. Do you, do you want to see what he does as well? He writes a psalm at this point. He writes a song about it. We started the service with it. Go there. And keep in mind now this entire story. And follow along as we read Psalm 30. This is the setting for the psalm. In Psalm 30, we read parts of it, so let me just read the whole thing. This is David's praise song at this moment. I will extol thee, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and has not, and not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried unto you. You healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have the famine. I didn't have the soldiers chasing me. You didn't kill me. Sing unto the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. For his anger endured but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall not be moved, never be moved. Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Hear, O Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing now. You have put off my sackcloth. You have girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing to your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. Wow. 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 So what do I do with it? Where do we go with this all? We got a story. What good does it do it if we don't walk away with something? Well, number one, I learned this. I got to be on guard this week. So do you. We got to be on guard. If you've gotten away from prayer, if you've gotten away from hiding in the word, get back this week. Get on your guard. Get on your guard. Number two, if you have unconfessed sin in your heart, grovel before the Lord before you experience the full disciplines that he could mete out. Go to him. And if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive. If you have experienced God's grace like David did. If you've experienced it, your response should be, I want to praise you, God. I don't want to come here and walk away and say, well, God owed it to me. God didn't. God in his mercy and grace forgives us. His mercies are new every morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you for correcting us. Thank you for humbling us. Thank you for being patient with us. And praise him. Praise him. Worship him. 
Give to the sense of not only words, but give of self, of sacrifice to say, God, how can we help promote such a wonderful name? How can I give a sacrifice that will cost me so I can exalt you and let others see your fabulous mercies and grace? Think about it. For a lot of us here next month, maybe our opportunity to just really sacrifice and to give with missions in mind so that we can broadcast that grace, but it's done out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed and we come before the Lord this morning, here we are in a time of worship, but this is the moment of truth. Are you right with the Lord? Do you know for sure you're on your way to heaven? We want to give you opportunity to talk with somebody if you have yet to do that. You're more than welcome to step to the side of the auditorium as the instrumentalist picks a song to to play that's meditative at this moment. If you want to go and talk to somebody about knowing for sure you're on your way to heaven, go right now. Staff is over at the right side of the auditorium. They'll gladly show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're on your way to heaven. You're a child of God. You've let down your guard. Ask forgiveness. You've been harboring something. Plead that the blood would cleanse you. If you're here, you're right with God, give praise. Give praise. Give thanks. Oh God in heaven, you are holy, you are mighty, we are weak and frail. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you, oh Lord, for your grace, your mercies. Thank you for instruction examples. Help us to learn to walk away this day making change. Father, I pray that you would just bless these folk in just a fabulous way this this week. Use them. Lord, I ask that you would just help them to be vessels that would be beaconing out Jesus Christ, showing his mercies. Father, I pray that you bless the fellowship, the food that we're about to partake in, and the good company of one another. Thank you again for these sweet folk, for the opportunity and the privilege we have for my wife and I to be a part of this congregation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.